Well, we've been a little bit uh, disjointed here the past couple weeks, but uh, you may remember a few weeks ago that Eric preached a sermon um, that began a short series uh, that he wanted to call, Jesus Say What? And I said, well, how about just, did Jesus really say? Let's, would that be? And he acquiesced. Um, I'm just kidding. So, uh, so we're doing a sermon series on uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. Just things that puzzle us. And, um, and as such, we've picked puzzling passages like this one. And uh, yeah, I just was really uh, confronted with my, um, my inability and my youth. So Jesus did it on purpose that you have a 35-year-old preaching to you today. I don't know why he chose that, but uh, we need to pray. <laughs> Father, uh, thank you for this, this time to come before you, to listen to you. I pray that um, in, in, uh, in my weakness, your power would be made perfect. We want to meet with you. We need to be fed by you. Amen. Well, two things before I get going. First of all... Um, the kneelers are up, but we are going to uh, not celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We are going to do that next week. Um, so uh, in our tradition, in the historical Presbyterian church, there was a, a midweek service to prepare people for communion when it was a communion Sunday. Just consider this your preparation. It's out there. You know it's coming. Get yourself ready. Secondly, did we give an update on Eric? I missed, um, We have an earlier service, so I came late. No. The brief update is, uh, you know, uh, many of us know that Pastor Eric has been sick for a couple weeks now. Um, a lot of fevery chills and, and, and headache, um, other, other painful symptoms. He was in the hospital for about four or five days. Um, returned home Wednesday feeling better. Crashed again that night. Just, didn't, just felt awful. There's, they've run some tests on him. They're, um, they have sent him home. And actually sent him on vacation. He's, uh, he's at the beach now with his family for this week. And uh, we're just praying that he rests well. And, uh, and that there's some relief from these symptoms. So we will continue to send out information uh, as, as we're able to. So please do continue to pray for him though. You, uh, most of us know that Eric has struggled with health issues for a number of years now. So uh, we are missing our pastor today. Um, I'll pray quickly for him. Father... Um, your son needs you. He needs the healing hand of the king. So uh, relieve his symptoms, uh, give rest to his heart, and, uh, and meet him and his family now as they're on vacation together. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So when Rachel and I uh, were pretty early on in dating, we went for a long hike with my brother Harrison, my older brother. And it was one of these kind of all-day jobs, you know, not, not just like an out and back in an hour, but we were gone for a very long time. And what Rachel didn't know going into that hike is that me and my brother and I communicate almost exclusively in movie quotes. And so we don't actually have, you know, real words that we exchange, just things that we've shared. Um, you know, so The Simpsons and Back to the Future and, you know, kind of all these movies that we grew up in, adventures and babysitting, all this kind of stuff that we grew up in in the 80s. This is a good one. Check it out. Goonies. I should mention that one. So, 
But so Rachel, uh, you know, by the end of that time, by about halfway through probably, she was just tired of it. It was a movie quote conversation that was completely leaving her out, and it was obviously uh, not thoughtful of my brother and I. Um, but, you know, that's ac- I think that's accurate to what we have going on here in this passage. That is a reason why this was, is listed among the difficult sayings of Jesus. Um, not because it teaches something that's so cataclysmically uh, hard to follow, although I think we'll see it does, um, but because it's a movie quote conversation. We just haven't seen any of these movies. We don't know what exactly they're talking about. We don't know who they're quoting. So it starts out that these, uh, these fellas come to test Jesus. They're the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, the Pharisees are uh, the religious power base in large part. The Herodians are the political power base. They have uh, allied themselves. Uh, the, the Herodians were the... the kings of the area at the time. They were Jewish kings that worked closely with Rome. And so, um, so they're really interested in making sure that Jesus doesn't do anything to disrupt their, their kind of uh, tender, fragile power base with Rome. And the Pharisees are saying, this Jesus guy is teaching stuff that's contrary to what we say, and he's gaining such a following, we're going to lose our authority in these religious matters. So this unlikely unity comes together, the Pharisees and the Herodians, to come and test Jesus. They do not like the way he is threatening their power. They come to test him. The movie that they are watching is this movie called Yahweh Will Be King. There is a great hope among God's people. The the animating hope is that God will rule this land that he has given them fully and completely. And right now the Romans rule it, and they don't like that. They don't like that some other foreign occupying power is, is claiming dominion over the land that God said that he would give to their fathers and their generations into, um, into the future, and that Yahweh himself, Israel's God, rules this land. And so they're thinking about that as they come to Jesus, and they're testing him. And they want to put a test in front of Jesus. They want to put a test to him. Because you see, Jesus' actions up to this point have been really clear to the Jews, but cryptic to the Romans. Jesus, right before this, and this is important to see the context in this. These things don't come out of nowhere. And many of the difficult sayings of Jesus come in a context similar to this. He had been claiming by word and deed in ways that, his, that God's people, the Israelite nation, would understand that he is the Messiah. He's been claiming, I am the king. He rode in right before this. He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He didn't do that by mistake. He didn't just decide, like, I'm kind of tired, and here's a donkey. I'll just let everybody else walk, and I'll ride because it's convenient. Jesus was doing something on purpose. And when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he was claiming to be the, the, the Messiah, God's anointed, chosen king. He was doing something that made sense to his people, to the Israelites, because the Israelites would know the prophecy from Zechariah. That humble, 
mounted on, uh, humble and gentle as your king, mounted on the foal of a donkey. He's, he's grabbing that symbol. You see, they're watching this movie called The Messiah. They're wa- they know this movie about God's king coming. And then right after that, he goes into the temple. Here's another movie they're watching related. The temple and God's king. You see, God's king was always supposed to be in charge of the temple. He was always supposed to be in charge of it. What is... Um, 150 years before this, so in our lifetime, that'd be like the Civil War, almost within living memory, just a little bit beyond. 150 years before this, there had been a, uh, uh, an insurrection led by Matthias Maccabee, and you'll know, uh, if you're familiar with that name, maybe, maybe not, but you'll know Hanukkah. So the celebration of Hanukkah comes from this time, 166 B.C., when God's people, when a few of God's people said, We cannot take this foreign rule anymore. And they rebelled. And Judas Maccabee ended up driving out the foreign power. And the first thing he did as the conquering ruler of God's land was to purify the temple. And he he was essentially crowned king in the temple. It's a kingly act to restore right worship to the temple. It's the same reason many of you know um, if, if you know your Bible, there's this weird jump from, um, you know, when the, when the Israelites come back from exile and they lay the foundations of the temple and the old men start crying. Do you know that story? Because it's such a pitiful new temple. It's not nearly as grand as their old one. But then we come into the New, into the new Testament and all of a sudden they've got this glorious great temple. Well, it's because Herod, Herod the Great, the same one who tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem to get to Jesus, Herod the Great built a new temple. He added on and he beautified and he expanded the temple to, in order to legitimate his rule as king of the Jews. He wasn't part of David's family. He didn't really have any legitimate claim. It was just a political move. But God's people knew that the Messiah has to restore the temple. They knew that. And so Jesus has ridden in on the foal of a donkey. He has restored the temple. He's cleaned it out just before this. And so they come to him and say, they say essentially, we get what you're saying. But tell us really, tell us really, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? See, what they're doing is saying, the Jews understand what you're saying, but we need you to come out and say it so that the Romans get mad and kill you. Because the Romans didn't really get it. You remember at the trial of Jesus, what he had done and said was enough for the high priest to tear his robes and say, this is blasphemy. The Jews get it. But then he goes to trial before Pilate, and Pilate's like, I don't really want anything to do with this guy. I don't, I don't, what has he, I don't get it. He is, he, is, he, is, he is working in the movie quotes of the Jews of the time. Does that make sense? Okay. So Jesus has just done this temple thing, and they come to him to trap him. They want him out of the way. They want him to say, either don't pay taxes, and then they'll get to run to, to the Roman rulers and say he's an insurrectionist, he's a rebel, you've got to kill him, then he's out of their way. Or they want him to say, do pay taxes, and then uh, all the people will say, oh, we knew it, you're in league with Rome. You can't be trusted, and so the people will turn on him. They want to trap him in his words. They want to trap him. So they ask him, is it lawful 
to pay tax to Caesar. In Luke's version, it says, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? You see, again, they're watching this movie called Yahweh is King. Yahweh owns this place. And if we're paying tribute to this foreign king, does that mean that we are saying that he's the king? When we hand him money, are we acknowledging you're actually the ruler? And is that against Yahweh? Is that against his law for us? Is it lawful to pay taxes? Even Jesus' answer quotes this great hope, this movie that they're watching. Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's. He's quoting Psalm 96. We usually say, or most of our translations say, ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Ascribe to the Lord honor and power. Jesus says, give to God. You could say the same. The end of that Psalm 96, the last verse says this. Say among the heathen, Yahweh is king. That's the great hope of God's people. They're asking, they're asking, how are you going to bring the kingdom, Jesus? And his response, he says, give me a coin. This is another movie we're not watching. Roman imperial rule at the time. uh, Clashing with Jewish law and religion. He says, give me a coin. We think it's just uh, an object lesson. Like if I put a pitcher of water up here and then I put the red dye in it and then make it got red and that's the sin. And, you know, then I have to put the bleach in it and then it's clear. It's not an object lesson. He's not doing an object lesson. It's a rhetorical device. You see, this coin that he asked for is a denarius. It's the day's, uh, you know, equivalent to a, one day of work for a laborer. And on the denarius, it has on the one side... Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, with his, with his picture on it. When they own a coin, when they hold a coin that has an image engraved on it, they're breaking the first commandment. No graven images. What's the image of God? Man. Right? From Genesis 1. Made in the image... When you hold a coin that has the engraved image of God on it, you're breaking the law. More than that, the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. Son of the divine Augustus, son of God. It's blasphemous. So Jesus, this is, this is another place, you know, to even own the coin, to even have the coin on you, Jesus is calling them out. Saying, this isn't about the law. If it was about the law, you wouldn't even have the coin. Look, you just produced it. You wouldn't even have that. This isn't about the law. He calls them out. You're hypocrites. This isn't about following God. This isn't about Him being king. It's about your power base. So now we can finally get to what Jesus said. What does He say to them? He says, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. You see, it's easy for us to just read this and think that all Jesus said was, there's the, you know, there's the government and there's the church and you've got to do your duty to both, but keep them separate. And if he had said that, these people trying to trap him, they would have said, well, they would have asked follow-up at the very least. They would have, they would have said that's a simplistic, stupid answer at most, but they certainly wouldn't have walked away baffled and amazed 
They wouldn't have walked away like Luke's version says, unable to hold his words, unable to find any charge to press against him. We don't understand what he said here. We have to admit that. We, didn't, we don't really get this. You see, Jesus has no concept of the separation of church and state because Yahweh is king. That's the movie that he's watched from a little kid. Yahweh rules the rulers of the earth. And this land, this very land and the grain that grows on it, uh, like Beth read, belongs to him. He doesn't have a concept of separating the two just to keep things easy and light on everybody. So Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar? What is Caesar's? So we can understand that as pay your taxes. Participate with this government. Participate. In other words, you've got to care. You've got to be involved. Ezekiel, a prophet from, uh, from after God's people had been dragged into different, out of their holy land and spread over. They've been de- defeated by a conquering enemy and spread all over that enemy's empire. It's called the exile. And Ezekiel is a prophet to Israel in their exile. And he says to them while they're living out of God's land in some foreign cities that they were forced to live in, he says, pray for the peace of that city. Participate in the welfare of that city. See, God's word is actually fairly positive on government. 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 are two passages in the New Testament, if you want to look them up later, very clear about the fact that God uses the government. God has established the government for the welfare of humans, for the welfare of his creation. It's actually pretty positive on it, on the whole. And this is where this passage, um, one of the ways it really confronted me this week, I just, I just don't think so. I don't really believe that. I just believe that there's, I, there's nothing that government really does. We get new leaders and nothing really changes. And they're not going to affect any real change or real help. Either from the large level or all the way down to local government. I, just, I don't read the news. I hardly vote. I vote for the president. And even then I don't really know what I'm doing. It's, a, it's embarrassing to say. But in cynicism, I've pulled away. I said, this isn't, this isn't worth my time. This is not worthwhile. But Jesus says, give to Caesar that's what, that which is Caesar's. He says, participate. You see, there are two types of people who are involved in the government. The first type want what's good. And the second type want power. Two types of people who go, in, who go into that line. People who want good and people who want power. If all the Christians say, this is not going to, nothing's going on here, nothing's worth doing in this government thing, uh, local or national at all, and we all pulled out, who would be left in government? The people who want power. It's not going to bring about good. Right? There's consequences to withdrawing like that. We also have to remember that Peter and the other apostles said this in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. And Jesus is not just saying, pay to Caesar and trust the governmental process. You see, he's quoting a movie here called Recent Revolutions. Uh, We talked about... Uh, Judas Maccabeus and his father Matthias, the high priest who, who starts this revolt and they have to move out of the city and they're, they're hiding in caves and Matthias is, 
is growing old, and on his deathbed, he says, and this is the celebrate remember, the celebration of Hanukkah gets told every year in an eight-day festival. They're watching this movie continually. It's God's people at this time. Matthias is dying. He's on his deathbed, and he's got all these sons. And he says, and he decides that Judas, his uh, his son, is going to be the one who's going to carry this forward. And he says to all of them, he says, "Render to the pagans what is their due, and don't forget to follow the law." You see, he's quoting. All of his hearers knew this. They all heard the echoes. Give to Caesar what is his due. Give to the pagans what is their due. And of course, Matthias was saying, revolution. Let's take them down. They've been evil. They've been evil to us. They've been wicked. They've oppressed us. Give them what's due to them. So Jesus, in the same breath, is saying, participate in the government. But he also confronts those of us who have our hope in the government. Who believe that our that, that, that our government and our and our religion, our faith, need to be seamlessly melded. Jesus is reminding us it's 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 a kingdom of this world. And while they can while good can come of it, you cannot put your ultimate hope in it. You can't hope in it in the way that um, that you want to. See the flip side of that coin that they, that Jesus asked for? One side had Tiberius, Caesar, son of God. The other side had a picture of the Roman goddess Pax. She's the goddess of peace. And above her is the inscription, High Priest. That Tiberius Caesar is the high priest who will bring peace. It's a false claim that Jesus is reminding us. It's a false claim. Rome is still an empire of the world. Don't put your hope there for peace. And further than showing, excuse me, further than showing these people when he asks for a coin, he's not just showing them this isn't about the law. He's also showing them you're complicit in the oppression that this this empire enacts. You're part of the problem. He's saying you may want revolution. You may want to say pay back Caesar. You may want to claim justice. But you also have to do it in the humility, remembering that you are part of the problem. You're the one carrying the coin. You're the one part of the system that is oppressing God's people. You know, we went on this Pennsylvania trip with, the, uh, with, with Dave and Clara and Lawrence here and a few of our other students. Um, we, uh, sorry, I can't see anymore. Raise your hand. No more. Okay. We didn't do a good job of retaining them as members and active people in our church. Um, but we went up there and we had to sleep. Uh, we had to sleep on floors as we were going to, to serve to partner with this church to serve a community. We had to sleep on floors, so I so I thought I'm going to get myself an air mattress. So what do you do? Amazon Prime. I go on Amazon Prime and I find an air mattress. It's got, it's, it's a plastic air mattress with like a velvety top, one of the nice ones, you know, so it's not slippery. It's important to have the velvet top for me. No, no kind of low scale air mattress will do. And it's got the pump built in there. Just the, the whole pump is, is built in. It's perfect, self-contained unit, really nice, going to be delivered to my house in two days. And I paid 15 bucks for it. $15. 
for like this constructed piece of plastic and a pump built in. Somebody had to design that. Somebody had to be at a factory that built the machines that made that thing. Somebody had to inspect it and handle it. Somebody had to, to assemble it all together. And then, like, how, who knows how many people had to pull it off the shelf, put it in a box, wrap it up, put my address on it, put it in the mail. The mailman had to carry it to this place, and then they sorted it, and then put it, in, and then somebody else had to carry it and bring it to my door and put it at the door. And I paid 15 bucks for it. Somebody is getting shorted. Right? I'm not paying for that. Somebody else is. Some workers' rights, some human rights are being violated. Somebody's dignity is being assaulted so that I can have a $15 air mattress. People are getting underpaid. People aren't getting the the right due for, for what they've designed and what they've created. Maybe some natural resources are getting stripped and that community is not getting refurbished in the way it needs to be. Somebody is paying for my air mattress and it's not me. Jesus says, hand me a coin. Where where are we complicit? Where are we guilty in this system of exploitation? Where are we not standing up for the problems that our Rome is creating, that our culture is creating? Where is the Spirit calling you to disentangle yourself from this oppressive system? Jesus is also confronting those who, um, who want to, to rise up violently. There have been plenty of these who want to lead God's people to, to violently assault Rome and drive out the invaders. But he says, give to God those things that are God's. In the same way in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard it said, X, but I tell you, and he expands it so big. He does this with this, with this, um, this movie from Matthias who said, pay back the pagans and don't forget to obey the law. Jesus says, render to Caesar and give to God all that is God's. He makes it so much bigger. He says, my kingdom has to come in my way. You can't use the weapons of the empire to fight my battles. Give to God all that is God's. A number of years ago, um, when this sort of thing was still kind of new, there was a, a gay pride day held at Disney World in Orlando. And so the, the park had special celebrations and discounts or something. Um, but they, they, they you know, advertised this. It was a big deal. Um, and so, so, all, so a lot of people who approve of this lifestyle came and, and entered the park and were part of that celebration that day. And what did the Christians do? Well, we picketed, of course. Like, what else do you do? So the Christians were there picketing outside in the 95-degree humidity, right? Like, good call. We'll, we'll stand out in the sun all day to, to show our cause. So they're out there picketing, um, becoming the enemies of Disney World and the enemies of all the people who were there. What is, do you know what the, the Disney employees did? They could have had them run off the property. 
They could have done it. They could have, they could have gone right back at them. They could have made their picket line a parking lot and made them move. They could have done anything. They brought them water. They brought refreshment to their enemies, to the great shame of the people of God. That should have been what we did. We should have had that idea. We should have been in the park giving out water instead of their $8 bottles of water. We should have brought water in there and given it to them. It's shameful. That is not how God's kingdom advances. It advances in these secret ways. It advances by bringing refreshment to your enemies. It advances by, by looking out for the people who hate you. It advances by looking out for the oppressed and the marginalized and the outcast. In short, Jesus wants us to be X-Men. <laughs> the X-Men, as you all know, are a band of mutants. Mutants, as you all know, are outcasts in society. This is not really happening here. This is an alternate reality called the Marvel Universe. And in the Marvel Universe, mutants are hated by humans. They're, they're a threat to humans. And so there's Magneto, who says... The humans will never accept us and we need to, to rise up and use our superior powers to, to establish the humans as our, sir, as our slaves and the mutants as the dominant force on earth. And we're going to do it through power and violence and weapons. But there's the X-Men. And the X-Men say, no, we can coexist with these humans. We can live with them peacefully. And so our job will be from here on out to protect and bring safety, prosperity, and security to the people who hate us. That's how we're going to go about winning this war. We're not going to use the weapons of the oppressors. We're going to subvert the oppressors. Jesus is calling us to be X-Men. If you recognize the echoes in there, you'll... you'll uh, you'll realize that the X-Men is actually a civil rights story. Malcolm X is Magneto, trying to use the power against the authorities. And Professor Xavier is MLK Jr., subverting the authority while working within it. You see, only when we know that Jesus is the true king can we relate rightly to our government and the humans that we are called to serve. Only when Jesus is the true king can we bring refreshment to our enemies. You see, this conversation is set in the context of Jesus' action in the temple. We said it was a kingly action to restore the temple, but what Jesus was doing there is not just sweeping the temple clean so that it could be a beautiful place again. Jesus is judging the temple. When Jesus enters the temple and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he scatters um, you know, all their, their wares and, their, and, the, and the, the cages where they held the sacrifices that they were selling to people, he, what does he do in that moment? He disrupts the temple system. He stops it. For a little while, there are no sacrifices offered in God's temple. 
He stops it. And he's saying, this is not the way anymore. He's judging the temple. He's judging it. He's condemning it. And if you're uncertain, right after this, this is Matthew 21, right after that story, he goes and he does one of the more enigmatic things he does ever um, because he's watching different movies than us. He curses the fig tree. You remember that story? He walks by it. It's out of season, Jesus. They're not supposed to be figs. And there's no fruit, only leaves. And he says, may you never bear fruit again. And the tree withers. And his disciples say, what are you doing? And then this great answer, he says, I tell you what, if you have faith, you could tell this mountain to go jump in the sea and it'll do it. Which doesn't make any sense again. Another enigmatic story of Jesus because he's watching a different movie than us. If you're in St. Elmo, you're a Mojo Burrito. You just picked up the Nemo Burrito, which is excellent. A new item there at the new Mojo. Really excited about that. And you've got to bring it up to somebody on the mountain. You say, I've got to bring this up to the mountain. I've got to go up, to the, up the mountain today. What mountain are you talking about? You can answer. Look at it. You're like, it's right there. If you're right outside of Jerusalem... And you say, you can tell this mountain to go throw itself into the sea. What mountain are you talking about? (laughs) No, Marshall. (laughs) You're talking about Mount Zion. You're talking about the holy mountain. The mountain of the temple. The temple mount. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on that temple. And he's saying that is no longer that is no longer the position from which God is going to reign and bring his peace, his packs to the earth. The place, the temple, the temple was the place where heaven met earth. The place where God dwelt among his people. Where he brought blessings to his people. But you know what else happens in the temple? What, what happens when heaven meets earth? Earth has to pay the price. You ever been around when heaven meets earth? A couple of our members were recently. Joe and Brittany Lloyd um, have a little shed out by their house. And one of the big storms, I guess a couple weeks ago on that Tuesday night when there were huge storms, their shed was struck by lightning. And they, it has electricity in it, so it had some wires and some light bulbs, and it completely fried every wire and just exploded the light bulbs. It destroyed the freezer that they had in there. This surge of power just uh, destroyed so much of that. My favorite is this. Joe had a fishing pole in there. And you, maybe it burnt. Maybe it, I mean, maybe it like drooped. No. It turned into cotton candy. Just <laughs> fibers everywhere just unraveled itself. It became unmade. That's what happens when heaven meets earth. Earth has to pay the price. Earth can't handle heaven. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus is saying, I am the new temple. I am the place where heaven meets earth. And I will pay the price. In the old temple, sacrifices had to be offered day after day after day because earth had to pay for the privilege of the presence of heaven. But Jesus comes and he says, I offer one sacrifice for all time. I've paid the cost. 
You know what else happens when heaven meets earth? If Joe and Brittany, Bro- uh, Brittany Lloyd had, had set it up just right, and they had this like massive battery that hasn't been invented yet, but it could be. And that was struck, and that battery charged. Do you know how long that battery would be able to charge, how long it could run their house from that one lightning strike? 60 days. Two months of power they could have gotten. So when heaven meets earth, there is, there, is, there is a price to be paid, but there's power to be had. There's blessings. And Jesus says, not only am I the locus of this price to be paid, and I'll pull it onto myself, but I am also the place where you will receive these blessings. You ever swapped something with anybody? Kids, have you guys ever been at your friends' houses and swapped toys? I used, to, I used to swap baseball cards all the time. I always tried to swap with somebody younger than me. <laughs> no, 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 this is a good one. Seriously. Got the Ken Griffey rookie card. You ever swap things with your neighbors? See, the kingdom is a swap. It's a swap. Jesus on the cross takes the payment that we that was that we were supposed to pay. He takes our shame, he takes our dirtiness, he takes our guilt, he takes our alienation from God onto himself. And he swaps it. And he gives us God's nearness. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us cleanness. He gives us right standing with God that cannot be taken away. Eric says often, if you're going to help somebody in trouble, you're going to get some trouble on you. And this is what it means to move the kingdom forward, not with the weapons of the world. So when you go to help at, uh, at East Lake Elementary School, you're going to meet some people who are marginalized, who have been told through structures of power, through their neighbors, that they matter a lot less than the rich white people down the street. But when you, when you go to serve them, you are giving them, you know, you are taking on their lack of dignity. You are giving them theirs and you are swapping and taking theirs. You are giving them yours and swapping and taking theirs. That's how the kingdom moves forward, in a swap. When you hang out with a depressed person, guess what happens? That person gets a little bit of your joy and you take their depression. The kingdom moves forward in these ways. It's a swap. It's a swap. And Jesus says to us, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. Participate, but don't hope in the government. And move the kingdom forward, not with the weapons of this world, but by the means of the kingdom, in imitation of the God of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are in desperate need of the resources you give us when heaven meets earth.
We don't have enough dignity of our own. We don't have enough reputation on our own to, to risk sacrificing it, to, to give it to those who have no reputation, who have no dignity, who have no power, who have no influence. We don't want to sacrifice those things. So show us again, King Jesus, how you give us those in abundance. How you offer us all of those things, reputation and power and dignity on the cross. May we, peop- may we be people who go from here eager and ready to bring about the swap that your kingdom movement requires. Amen.